Blog Talk Radio. This is our common ground, alternative activist empowerment talk radio, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Who are you? You don't know. Don't tell me Negro, that's nothing. What were you before the white man named you a Negro? And where were you? And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak then? It's about what we didn't do. Amen. Then it speaks to us and the possibility for us as a future person. Because ultimately, our people's future resides on what we do outside of the White House. African descent family, America failed. She put them in chains. The government put them on slave quarters, put them on action block, auction blocks, put them in cotton fields, put them in inferior schools, put them in substandard housing, put them in scientific experience, experiments, put them in the lowest paying jobs, put them outside the equal protection of the law, kept them out of their racist bastions of higher education, and locked them into positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America? No, no, no. Not God Bless America. God... Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground, a higher ground for discourse, discussion, solutions, and ideas. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Talk, talk, that matters. matters. Transforming truth truth to power. One broadcast at a time. And now to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. And good evening and thank you so very much for joining us at Our Common Ground tonight. Yes, it is the place where we come to make no apology for the vision that we see, for the hope for which we struggle, and the place where we are today. And I am so happy to have all of you with us. If you are listening on a smart device and you would like to join us in our very active chat room, you can come to blogtalkradio.com backslash, and that's to the right, OCG, and join our chatters. And I see that we are having, we have quite a few chatters in our chat room who are gearing up to discuss our number is 347-838-9852 if you'd like to write it down. Uh, we'll be taking your calls in the second hour of this program. Tonight at Our Common Ground, we are going to be in conversation with George E. Curry. And I'll tell you some more about him in just a second. 
and I'm sure that you know him. And uh, in our second uh, page, we're going to be talking about the dilemma. When I lived in Italy, uh, I had a neighbor who would always talk about her dilemma, and I always wondered, what is she saying? And it took me almost six months uh, to figure out she was saying dilemma. So I'm always saying dilemma. And uh, also, we're going to be visiting with the impressions and legacy and lessons of Professor Derek Bell. Uh, at our Common Ground, our November reading is Faces at the Bottom of the Well, The Permanence of Racism. And we hope that you will get that book. For those of you who are trying to jot it down in your calendars, for uh, next week, we'll be meeting with Dr. David Eichard, talking about his new book, Blinded by the Whites. He is an old and very, very treasured Our Common Ground voice professor at Florida State University, and uh, he is also the author of A Nation of Cowards, and I'm sure that you will want to write that down. But tonight, we are so pleased to be able to have joined us George Curry, and let's tell you a little about who he is. You're listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. These are not necessarily literal stories of lynching, but stories of painful indignities and sometimes physical assaults. Stories that are shared and passed down from generation to generation. That seemed like a provocative way to begin our discussion. And so I asked our African-American guests if they had any lynching stories that they'd be willing to share. I think white America really doesn't understand the pain and the degradation a person endures uh, when uh, they face racism. I grew up in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and my earliest memory of this is seeing my mother come home. She did domestic work. And she could work all day, clean kitchen, wipe kids' snotty nose, cook. And when she came home, she had to ride in the back seat of a car. I remember asking my mother, I said, Mama, why do you take this? Why do you ride in the back of that car? And she said, George, I have no choice. This is how I make my living. Uh, one thing Nightline could do, and I would be very interested to hear the answer, is to uh, ask the other group, uh, now that they have been asked, what is their lynching story? Yes, please, George. Uh, George Curry, editor-in-chief of the National Newspaper Publishers uh, News Service. Uh, there have been a lot of um, photographs and footage out concerning the looting. How widespread is it, and is there any indication that it's dropping off? Well, first I would say it's not nearly as widespread as the focus seems to be when the camera happens to be at those locations. That, that's just a reality. This is a very large country with many cities, and even the city of Baghdad has many areas. Uh, we believe that it is tapering off. The examples of Basra, the limited looting that happened against regime locations in Mosul has come to an end. Uh, some of these were retribution against the regime. Some have gone beyond that, clearly. 
uh, but we think that it is already tapering off significantly. It's not an acceptable behavior, behavior for the Iraqi people. And where leaders are stepping forward in communities, it's coming to an end. And we certainly encourage that to happen in as many communities as possible. That's, that's, uh, that's how we're approaching it right now. This is Today with Bryant Gumbel and Katie Couric, live from Studio 1A. Because another journalist who watched the Simpson interview with special interest is George Curry, the editor of Emerge News Magazine. He's in Washington. Mr. Curry, good morning. Good morning, Brian. What did you think of the interview? Well, I thought it was an, a very interesting interview. Uh, it was very clear that O.J. wouldn't answer certain things about that night. And, but he did make a, a pretty clear case for how he's living now and his inability to be left alone, as he put it. What did you think about his perceptions of how the public sees him, particularly how the black community now sees him? Oh, I think he's totally missing the point. Uh, he's in a land of make-believe if he thinks that people still perceive him the way they perceived him before. The question that, that really, uh, an elongated answer last night was about the African-American community that took him in, even though he was not really a part of it, and then he still, still seems to be uh, uh, set apart from the African-American community, and he did not answer that question well. Do you think he appreciates the extent to which uh, his case may have polarized views among black and white Americans? I'm not so sure he has a reality check on anything. If he thinks that white America still loves him and that he'll still be able to live a comfortable life in the United States, I think he needs a reality check. Do you think he came across as sympathetic or unsympathetic? Ne neither necessarily. They don't, there were certain parts that were very human. Uh, his reaction, talking about his wife and his being stalked everywhere. But there was another part that was quite evasive when you start talking about the facts. Well, I don't think the media's done a good job of reporting it. Um, what th one thing that Romney always says is that uh, he'll create uh, 12 million jobs in the next four years. But there are reports out there about Moody's and others saying, look, regardless of who's president. The NBA players are employees, and they shouldn't be any different than any other employee. If you're working in the world, you have to have a certain attire, a certain dress code. If you want to go to a particular function of black tie, then you dress black tie. If you work for a company, you have casual Friday, you have casual Fridays. I mean, that society and these base, uh, basketball players uh, should not be exempt of them. In fact, the other, the other point is that there will be 12 million jobs created in the next four years. So you can't take credit for that. Now, what I think Obama needs to do, which is what you had said earlier you want me to talk about, is one, is, is she still she's got to continue to hammer him on saying, let's get some specific. You, the numbers do not add up. Now, you talk about uh, you want to put in caps on mortgage interest deduction, which you've suggested very lightly, and uh, charitable donation, and they just pull the figure out it's behind saying 25%. Oh, yeah, you can spin it any kind of way you want. So he stay with him on the lack of specifics. He can knock him out on Medicare because he, he's very, very weak there. Uh, and, 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 hey, why do you want to give $2 trillion more than the military has asked for? And come back to the point is he has no solution. He has no plan. His only plan is get me elected and we'll work something out. And I think Obama needs to handle those last, these last three weeks. Just keep pounding. And, and see, the other thing is Obama trying to... to, to trying to be all of a sudden moderate and caring about women when he hasn't before. He has said specifically, I remember in Iowa back in last December, he said he would veto the DREAM Act if Congress passed it. And now he's all of a sudden getting compassion. Look, look, the old Romney, while he was governor of Massachusetts, had a better chance of beating President Obama than the Romney who's a, a captive of the Tea Party. And then now, when in the closing days, when nobody left but undecided, and you've got to get that part, now he's trying to pretend to be a, a candidate. Uh, that he has never been the whole while. 
There's no question what he did was honorable. I think another reason that we need to address this thing is because I think this thing's going viral. People are talking about it everywhere. But I think part of it, we need to say this, part of it is when you see stereotypes uh, exaggerated, yeah. there's some kind of comfort level among particularly white media in saying, oh, let's really play this more and more. I think this man is also being exploited. Look around you. According to the National Asian Pacific American Legal, Legal Defense Consortium, Although white men are only 48% of the college-educated workforce, 48%, they hold 85% of the tenured college positions, 86% of law firm partnerships, more than 90% of the top jobs in the news media, and 96% of CEOs. Don't get me wrong, many of those people deserve to be where they are. But too many women, too many Latinos, too many Asians, too many African Americans have been excluded for reasons that have nothing to do with competence or merit. Hell. On videotape. See, I don't think we're in a post-racist society when according to the Justice Department, a hate crime is committed every hour. And I don't think we are in a post-racial society when a Louisiana Justice of the Peace won't marry a couple because they're interracial. I think his excuse was, uh, I'm worried about what happened to the kids. Yeah, let's see about that. Uh, they may grow up to be Tiger Woods, or Halle Berry, or the mayor of Washington, D.C., oh, or the president of the United States. Spare me of that worry. We have a long way to go. We have a very long way to go. Because we live in an imperfect society, uh, Condoleezza Rice, whom I don't quote, all, quote often, called it America's original birth defect, that we have struggled to have our actions match our rhetoric. He is America's foremost African-American journalist, editor and thought leader, master observer over many decades of American and African-American history. And he is with us tonight, a native son of Tuscaloosa, Alabama. He is a graduate of Knoxville College in Knoxville, Tennessee. George Curry is editor-in-chief of the National Newspaper Publishers Association News Service. He's the former editor-in-chief of Emerge Magazine, and he writes for a weekly syndicated column for a National Newspaper Publishers Association, a federation of more than 200 African-American newspapers. He is the author of Jake Gaither, America's most famous black coach and editor of the Affirmative Action Debate and the Best of Emerge magazine. He was called to serve as editor of the National Urban League's 2006 State of Black America report. His work in journalism has taken him to Egypt, England, France, the Ivory Coast, Mexico, Germany, Malaysia, Thailand, Cuba. In 2012, he was part of the official U.S. delegation and a presenter at the U.S.-Brazil Seminar on Educational Equity in Brasilia, Brazil. 
He is a member of the National Speakers Association and the International Federation for Professional Speakers. While working as a national correspondent for the Chicago Tribune, he wrote and served as chief correspondent for the weekly praise television documentary, Assault on Affirmative Action, which was aired as part of PBS's Frontline series. George Curry was part of the week-long Nightline special, America in Black and White. He has also appeared in CBS Evening News, ABC, MSNBC, ESPN, The Today Show, and Good Morning America. He is chairman of the board of directors of Young DC, a regional teen-produced newspaper, immediate past president of the Knoxville College Board of Trustees, and serves on the board of the Kimba N. Smith Foundation and St. Paul Saturdays, a leadership training program for young African-American males in St. Louis. Curry was also a trustee of the National Press Foundation. It is an honor and a pleasure, this privilege, to be in conversation with George E. Curry. This is our common ground. Thank you for joining us tonight. Transforming truth to power. And George Curry, we are so pleased to have you with us tonight on Our Common Ground. Thank you, my brother, for joining us from the birthday, stepping out from the birthday celebration of Michael Eric Dyson at the Haitian Embassy in Washington, D.C., Sitting in your car. <laughs> That's listen, a wonderful way to be with us. Well, listen, I, I was listening to those clips. I hadn't heard them in a long time. I said, "Boy, it brought back a lot of memories." <laughs> that is a lot of memories. It it has. Yeah. You have the most illustrious long-term journalism career in the history of African Americans in. Um, uh, in, in this country, and we thank you for the voice that you have raised consistently. I mean, those folks in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, they must give you a parade every time you come home. No, what I like about Tuscaloosa is they still treat me like George. That's who I've always been. That's who I'll always be. That's, and when I go back, wonderful. I don't go to my classmates. I go to old ladies who, you know, you call them Miss Dodd and Miss Bessie and Miss Bertha and yeah, that's yeah, first yeah. name. And that's where I, I'm going back in a couple of weeks to have a speech there. And that's the first place I'm headed to those ladies because they made all the difference in my life. And you know, I grew up, George, in the uh, Deep South, Jim Crow. Right. Um, and they are the people that hold that held our dreams above our heads. It's such a wonderful thing to have that kind of of uh, spirit in your life as a, as a child. One of the things I wanted to ask you, George, with this illustrious career, as you were growing up in in Tuscaloosa, uh, what kind of world did you vision when you entered Knoxville College that you would have, and how is it different from what you see now? Well, it goes back to growing up and having the dream uh, since I was in eighth grade that I wanted to be a journalist. I had never, never met a black journalist in my life. Um, my hometown paper didn't hire any black reporters. In okay. fact, I got my job at Sports Illustrated and couldn't get one in my hometown newspaper. But growing up 
uh, in segregation, one thing about it is on, on the segregation is that you have black, your black schools and the best of your black communities are all concentrated in that school. And the message they keep telling you all the time, I remember my, my high school principal saying, you got to be ready when integration comes. you got to be ready. you got to be ready. And I'm still waiting for it to come. It hasn't gotten here yet. But uh, <laughs> they've they got us prepared a certain mindset, and, they, and we didn't let anything discourage it. We, they told us we had to be twice as good. It wasn't fair, but that was reality, so go ahead and deal with it. And it was that kind of mentality, wrapped in love, challenging you to be the best you can possibly be, even while others around you were telling you you were less than. I remember mm-hmm. white ministers coming on television saying, if God had wanted us to be equal, it would have made us the same color. color. That kind of nonsense. But mm-hmm. all around me, I had people in my community feel like I could do anything I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Were you part of the integration process of public schools in Alabama? No, I wasn't, uh, and I'm glad I wasn't, quite frankly. Uh, I was in the 10th grade in high school when George Wallace stood in the schoolhouse door at the University of Alabama. I was in 10th grade, and they had only one African-American before who had tried to enter their Oscar Lucy in 1958, but they forced him to step aside and integrate the University of Alabama. That was in 1963, so that I remember. So, no, I was not. I had to ride in the back of the bus and drink some colored water fountains and live on a certain side of town. Uh, but when I look back on that, that's the best world I could have had <clears throat> because I got so much encouragement from that. And, and, and I think, Janice, you know, you can, you, you can react to it two ways. It can discourage you or it can encourage you. And I'm the oldest of four kids, and I have three younger sisters. So for me, I had to set a standard. <clears throat> Excuse me, neither of my parents finished high school. So I had to set a standard for my three sisters because I wanted to live in a different world. And it was up to me, if any kind of pressure I felt was, it was up to me that I had to change the course of our family history. And my, all three of my sisters went to college, all of them graduated, and they're doing well in life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, you, but, but, you but, but, but it I sounds like... Yeah, it sounds like, I mean, one of the things that's, that segregated communities did for black children was to teach them to have dreams, to struggle toward achievement because it was a way, achievement was a way of life for everyone, exactly. whether it was achieving to go to college or achieving to um, to. to, to to get a better job uh, for our parents. It was all about achievement, and I always call it the original yes, I can. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. Uh, because, uh, you know, when you think about it, 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 it except excuse I remember when I was a Washington correspondent for the uh, Chicago Tribune, and I covered Dexter Manley, who played with the Washington Redskins, and he was testifying in Congress and he, t- he was crying. He said he, he couldn't read. He, ne- he went to college, all America, went to pro, and could not read. That was unthinkable because my football coach, if you did not do your homework, you couldn't play ball. It was not a factory. High school and college, you got your lesson first. Oh, you weren't going to play ball. And I think about all these athletes who went through high school and college and got exploited, and you could come out and can't read. That was just unthinkable. In my generation. Mhm. A- absolutely. You're 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 absolutely right. What kind of uh journalist did you envision yourself wanting to be? 
Uh, first of all, you know, I, I, as I said, I had never met one, <laughs> but I, I, I want to. Um, I, I just grown up young and dumb. You, you know what's missing. And so I looked at our paper, and the only time I saw African Americans in the newspaper was when they were being arrested for a crime, or they were athletes or entertainers. And I knew there were so many other stories to write. And so I wanted to write them. I, I didn't know exactly what I was going to be writing, but I wanted to write some stories that nobody else was writing that would put us in a more realistic uh, 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 position in the newspaper and the media. That's what I mm-hmm. wanted to do. And that's what, and that's what I've never gotten away from. Um, uh-huh. I remember when I left Sports Illustrated when St. Louis posted back, I had like 25 stories on the front page my first year. And one of the first stories I wrote was that I got five security guards uh, fired for pushing drugs in a housing project. I grew up in a housing project, and if I can't write and cover people in a housing project, who will? And so I, I see a unique role that we have to serve as black journalists. You don't let anybody limit you. You go cover anything there is to cover, but at the same time, you don't shy away uh, for stories involving your community. Uh-huh. You know that you were one of the first national journalists that caught my eye uh, no, when I, didn't know that. <laughs> I was a, a student. Uh, I, I'll say I was a late student <laughs> when I was a student. <laughs> but uh, I was blessed to live in um, a segregated community that had a very prosperous and a very aggressive um, black newspaper for mm-hmm. over 40 years. And I wrote for that newspaper from the time I was, like, in the third grade until I graduated from high school. And then I was still harassed when I was a student after I had left home to continue to write for that paper. And I think that that is part of the fabric of our history that people really need to understand and to encourage even adults who are not writing to write more. I, I mean, I just think that our voice has to come from so very many places. I was talking about this on the air last week, asking people to start writing to their local newspapers, to opinion pages, to letters to the editor, because we need our voice out there as much as possible. But without a doubt, you have been a shining voice. In the on the national media scene as a commentator as a as a journalist and um, I, I will never forget the first edition of Emerge magazine and you were the editor in chief uh, and at that time by that time I I was not doing radio I was not doing radio yet but mm-hmm. in a major corporation. Emerge sat on my coffee table in my office. I had copies of articles made with uh, copies of the subscription page sent to people within the organization and said, this is something that you need to be reading. But it also speaks to, your career speaks to the very significant issues that you have not only been a reporter on, a journalist about, but 
the way in which you, which, which you have raised the issue. And I specifically want to talk about affirmative action. And last okay. week at, at the Supreme Court, uh, from the time that you started talking and writing about affirmative action at the passage of Executive 11246, to what happened on the Michigan case last week. What are your impressions? First of all, i gotta got to ask you, what newspaper were you writing for? Uh, the black the, uh, the uh, West Palm Beach, um, oh, I, I um, it was a West Palm Beach newspaper that was 40 years old by the time it closed in the 1990s. Mm-hmm. The reason and, I ask you, I'm going to ask you a question. The reason I asked you that was, I got Pittsburgh Courier in Tuscaloosa. It was like contraband, and so my stepfather would get the Pittsburgh Courier, and he and another friend of his who didn't finish high school either, and they would talk about these issues in the Pittsburgh Courier, and perhaps uh-huh. even more so than the Tuscaloosa News. That really opened up a whole new world for me because I learned absolutely. about W.B. Boys and Ab- Dave Rogers. Absolutely. And in the South, all schools, all high schools and elementary schools are named after Booker T. Washington. And when I started reading about W.E.B. Du Bois, and then I found out that uh, he and I shared the same birthday, it was all over. It was so over. <laughs> yes. And so, yeah. so even more than anything else, and I'm going to get to your question in a minute, but more than mm-hmm. anything else, that had an influence on me because yeah. it taught me that my history was out there and that I could mm-hmm. write about it. I know. On Wednesday, the uh, Pittsburgh Courier would hit the black stores, the the mm-hmm. the, the black sundries, uh, and um, m- my dad was uh, just. I mean, he would he would make you read from it. Uh, we did reports from it. We had it at our schools, and the name of the paper, by the way, was the Florida Photo News. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 and those papers, I mean, Wednesday was the day that Courier came in, and it was also the day that the Amsterdam News came from New York uh, into my community. And those papers were very instrumental in guiding. And then you had Jet and, and Ebony, of course, and then at our house we got Crisis Magazine. Uh, so... Those are the things that we read. Those are the things that we used as references in the scant uh, black Jim Crow library at our schools. And they're so valuable even today. I run a news service, a 200 black newspaper, and we have a website, blackpressusa.com. Many of our stories appear. It's so important today because everything is about perspective. I mean, if you look at your daily newspaper, daily newspaper, oh, by the time you get a daily newspaper, it's old news because you have cable TV and you have around-the-clock radio. And so you know, so, so what do you turn in for? It's a perspective. You get a perspective now in the African-American press that you'll get nowhere else, and that's why it's so essential that we support these publications. But it, i got to tell you, it's an embarrassment to me to look at some of the circulation figures, say uh, uh, Amsterdam News, that, that, mm-hmm. that you got um, four million, uh, got 53 million African-Americans doesn't have a circulation of uh, 50,000 or 25,000, that we don't mm-hmm. support these publications, but yet we want the same service from them. And that's one of the things I'm really sort of disappointed in because we're not going to get this anywhere else, and we need to support our black publications. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, um, 
I, I will tell you that when Emerge Magazine stopped publishing, my heart was broken. By that time, I was on radio. It was the, uh-huh. the source of where the direction that I was taking this programming on a daily basis. Uh, there were very few editions of Emerge Magazine where I didn't have at least one or two of either the writers or the featured person or event as part of this broadcast. And you're yeah, and I appreciate right. that. We talked and, talk and the thing about it is, talk. yeah. Well, you know what? I I told you when I, when I went to Chicago Tribune, if I had five stories in that year that I really, really felt strongly about, that was a good year for me. And so once I got a chance to emerge, man, every story we did was a good year for me. Absolutely. And I had reporters around the country, the best: New York Times, Washington Post, L.A. Times, Time Magazine, Newsweek. They were begging the right for me because they were frustrated and couldn't have, have their voice at their publication, and they would beg me to write for me. And i got to tell you, I have some friends who could not write for me because we did not drop our standards because we were a black publication. Our publication we can put up against anybody, and we won national awards, beating time magazine and Newsweek in certain categories. And so it, it, it was a commitment I had to excellence, which is where I learned growing up in Alabama, certainly from my football coaches and my teachers, that we, we weren't going to drop out. You would never say, oh, it's a, bu- it's a black publication, therefore we're going to find typos and, and, and words and error. No, we're going to have mm-hmm. the highest standard it is. And I think that's what people respected, that we didn't drop our standards. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was these, were also, these are also vehicles for upliftment for our children. And I'm having uh, a very hard time understanding why in our community we talk about we want to talk about oppression we want to respond and react to to racism but we are not using the tools in our toolboxes that exist right and 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 that is the kind of journalism the the you know one of the things that i love about the work that you do and the way in which you write even the way in which you um, I enjoy Friday afternoons with you with um, Reverend Al Sharpton and the clarity that you bring to some of the issues that 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 uh, I want to talk about. I mean, uh, I know that I was a pain in the neck of Don Armstrong and some other people at Emerge Magazine when I had gotten involved with the Kimba Smith right. um, uh issue and mm-hmm. and I knew that your magazine was going to carry that story and had Emerge magazine not carried that story Kimba Smith will st- would still be sitting in Danbury prison in Connecticut and I thank well, you so very much I George, you can't argue with me about this. I I was there before the article and after the article, and I mean I I um I, I tease um, Deval Patrick about this all the time because right. I made a Thursday afternoon call to his office when he was with the Justice Department every Thursday at three o'clock. He knew it was me. Because and and it wasn't until Emerge Magazine covered this story, and people were absolutely outraged about what had happened to Kimba Smith. 
Well, let me and give you the background no on, e- on this. Because there is no Emerge magazine today, you know what? Marissa Alexander is still sitting in prison, even though her her sentence has been overturned and she's waiting a new trial, but she's still right. sitting in prison. No question. Let, let, let me uh, give you a little background on the Kimball situation. Uh, based on our audience, uh, here's a 24-year-old young lady who never even got a ticket for the jaywalking. And but the biggest crime, if you want to call it that, was getting involved with a guy who ended up selling drugs, and she got 24 years mandatory sentence and never used or sold drugs, according to the judge. Yet because of the horrific mandatory sentence in law, she was sent to prison. We now this is where you and I may part company. I can't take full credit for for getting her out, Janice. What I did was we we read and Stewart wrote the story. We wrote about three stories on her, the first two stories, cover stories. And I did my part as a journalist. That's what I was supposed to do. Now, Elaine Jones of the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund, she did her part as an attorney. She read our stories, because I can't represent anybody in court. She read our stories. Then she said, I will represent. We will represent this young lady. And she Mm -hmm. did. She didn't get it overturned, but ended up getting a pardon from Bill Clinton. So this this is the way our community has to function in order to me, in order to be effective, everyone had to do their own role. My role was to do the journalism part, to publicize the issue, to put it out there. She used her legal talent to get her out of jail, and, and, it, and it, it is all of us working together. Her parents, none of this would have been possible without the mm-hmm. Duncan and you who you know very well. Uh, none of that would have been possible without their strength. So I think for us to be successful, every component has to be working. I did my share, but my share didn't do it by itself. I just still have to come back and say, George, that I was working with Kimba's parents before LDF took the case. Right. And and it was that it was it was the Emerge magazine story after we had been begging and pleading and doing everything that we could to find the kind of defense team that she needed mm-hmm. and if it were not for that story Elaine Jones probably would not have been influenced because LDF has an awful lot of challenges both fiscally as well as requests the quant the quality the quantity of the requests that they they got at the time so I just still have to say that that was the breaking point that was the I mean I was dancing I was dancing up and down the steps in this house uh, the <laughs> afternoon that Elaine Jones said that they would take the case yeah yeah I was I was excited about that too and the thing about it it, it struck such a chord I had people writing saying uh, it could have been me or I know somebody <laughs> like that Mm-hmm. I remember so I, I mean the, the first time a that guy I wrote met me and said, I'm crying. He said, I'm crying as I write this letter. I am crying. Right. This is a man who grew up in Jackson, Tennessee, where Lane College is. He's writing me like and we got hundreds of letters like that. So it, mm-hmm. it, it, it tells me as a journalist, you know, you can talk about mandatory sentencing and, and you can talk about how unfair it is, but unless you tell it through the life of a person, that's that's how people connect and that's how you really Ab- have a Absolutely. Impact. I know the the first time that I met with Gus and Odessa Smith uh, was at a conference in in New Jersey. I had never heard of Kimba Smith, and mm-hmm. I was uh, doing interviews of people who were attending this conference for this broadcast, and I asked to meet with them, 
and they were telling me about the struggles that they had in trying to get help and get people's interest in the case. And I came home, and I called Gus the night the next night, and I said, I am going to start an Internet campaign for your daughter because mm-hmm. Kimba and my daughter are the same ages. And I wow. said to Odessa, but for the grace of God, go I. Mm-hmm. And that was that was the theme song for um, for the the first three or four months of the Kimba Smith uh, Free Kimba Smith campaign, but it was it was emerged. But okay, so um, we we all agree, and those of you out there listening, I know that you agree that the black media is so very important. It form it can't it has the potential to form a direction and an agenda for our community to raise that and clarify that agenda and George Curry you have done that so well in your career. Let me ask you about uh, at the time that you were at Emerge Magazine, did you envision a Barack Obama as President of the United States? Oh, I can't say I have, but Dr. King did even before he died. In fact, he said in an interview, I remember reading uh, in, in Playboy magazine uh, about that. He thought it would happen sooner than it did, uh, that we had one. But no, I didn't expect him to see it in my lifetime. Absolutely not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, no, I'm not. I was just totally, totally surprised and and uh, excited, uh, but I never thought I would see it in my lifetime. Uh-huh. Uh, at the end of the Civil Rights and Black Power Movement, how had they formed what your career would look like, what your life would look like, what the man George Curry would look like uh, in 2014? Well, I got to go back further than that. I have to go back to my stepfather. Um, my my biological father left uh, when I was very young. And I mentioned my stepfather went to the sixth grade. My mother went to the eighth grade. My stepfather, William Polk, is a man who took us in. Uh, who had a love for Africa, a knowledge for Africa, about Africa, was half natural back in the 50s. And he really, before any civil, modern civil rights movement, I, that's where I got my, my real base from, was from him. And that's why now every time I go to Africa, I always say, boy, I wish William was here. I just wish he was here. And before he died, he said to George, he said, you've done a lot of stuff. Nothing you would do will surprise me. And I remember the first time I went to Egypt, but I was like, man, I wish William was here. Or, or later on when I went to South Africa, I just wish he were alive. He never got a chance to go to Africa. So before the modern civil rights movement, my base was my stepfather, who taught us a love for black people. In fact, would get on my mother for having white. Now, they weren't making black dolls. And he was angry because he brought white dolls <laughs> into the house for my sister. So he said, they should look like us. And so that's where I got my really, really, really uh, the, the phone knows from. And mm-hmm. now, also now, remember, we're talking about 63 Wallace stood in the schoolhouse door, okay, but we also had the bum in Birmingham Church. Those girls, four girls died. Mm-hmm. Well, I had some friends of mine, we, we uh, played hooky, as we call it, and went up in protest. My mother didn't know about this until later on when I was giving a speech somewhere and mentioned it. She had no idea I stayed out of school to go to this protest. Uh, so we did that, and also 
uh, the 65 uh, 7 of Montgomery March. I was participating in as a student, mind you. And so I kind of got the bug earlier. We had the uh, uh, campaign to desegregate the bus in Tuscaloosa, and I remember borrowing my uncle's car, and we were going to bus around, and I would drive and, 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 and pick up people and take them to work and that kind of thing. So I had the, the, the resistance in me early. Uh, I spent a summer interning with, uh, with SNCC, the Student Mind Coordinating Committee, and had mm-hmm. the pleasure of working on uh, John Lewis and Julian um, 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 Bond, and that really crystallized it for me because they, they believe in black power and black pride and in ways I had never had articulated to me. And so it was it was all that working together that kind of brought me to where I am today. I mean, that mm-hmm. is the cause mm-hmm. of that and, and the struggle. And, uh, and it existed. And, and like I said, it affects people different ways. For me, it made me more determined. And you just can't discourage me because if that's all you've got to discourage me, you've got to come up with something better than that because I've seen worse. And so mm-hmm. I, I, I'm not – so that, that, that was my – now – it affects different people different ways. Some people get discouraged. Uh, it never discouraged me uh, because this is this is what I wanted to do. This is what I want to do all my life. And uh, and and I think about we had I was on a program with um, for Ron Walters at Howard um, last week, and I was saying that you know we are supposed to use whatever talent we have for the betterment of our people, and I've always believed that. And I the people I admire. Or people who believe that, because I mean, what, otherwise, why be involved? I mean, for what? Mm-hmm. I mean, what good is it gonna go have all these writing skills, and I'm not writing about my people and, up, and uplifting my people? And you can just you can have nice cars and nice checks and nice houses, and and, and that's not life. So what, what? 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 Why are you on Earth? You should have a reason for for breathing, and not to say I, I sat here on Earth and and did nothing. You know, you mm-hmm. should have. And, you know, they want the world to be a better place when you left than when you came. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, why and be you, here? So that's that's where it comes from. You have, I mean, I know that uh, you have um, uh, been awarded a doctorate deg- honorary doctorate degree, Doctor of Humane Letters from Kentucky State University, and another one from Lane College, honorary doctorate and that the University of Missouri presented you with the Missouri Honor Medal for Distinguished Service in Journalism, the same kind of the same honor that was awarded to Joseph Pulitzer and Walter Cronkite and John H. Johnson and Winston Churchill and that you were named uh, the National Association of Black Journalists Journalist of the Year in 2003. Are you aware how much you have formed uh, black people's, America's perception of black people and our history in this country? Are you aware of that? I mean, are you in touch with that? (laughs) <laughs> not really, not 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 really, Dennis. Uh, and I tell you why, it's not in false modesty. It's just that what I'm proudest of is not any journalism award. What I'm proudest of was that uh, if the the Black Journalists Association in St. Louis, Great St. Louis Association of Black Journalists, in 1977 started a high school journalism workshop for high school kids. I directed that program. I directed one in D.C., I directed one in New York, and all of my journalism baby kids have gone out into the world. Many of them uh, who really have excelled 
And a lot of them not only went into journalism, they started journalism workshops like the one that I taught in. Mm-hmm. And what I am proudest of is that more than any journalism award I've ever gotten. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the people, um, Ron Walters was a mentor mm-hmm. of mine. When I came out of okay. corporate America, I, I spent the first 25 years of why did I say I wasted the first 25 years of, of you didn't my waste. It's not a waste. Here. It's not a waste. <laughs> I mean, but I I, I worked for uh, the founder of uh, Polaroid Corporation. I worked for him mm-hmm. for eight years. I worked for the founder of Wang Laboratories. I even worked wow. at Raytheon in the Missile Systems Division, but don't tell anybody, please. Okay. That was a secret. <laughs> what, what I will say is that um, you do, at some point in your life, understand that you have found your mission, your, your life's work. Oh, yes. Oh, definitely. Yeah, that's always. I've I never had a doubt about that. Uh-huh. And having uh-huh. been in the business 43 years, I'm just excited about it now as I was 43 years ago. Uh-huh. So this is, what uh-huh. I was put, this is what I was put on earth to do. This is what I was born to do. And uh-huh. God gave me certain um, skills to use. I call Ron Walters uh, one evening, and, and, and I really, really uh, feel so blessed to have been mentored by some very wonderful, wonderful ancestors, and Ron Walters was one of them. And he said to me, and I should tell you this, he said to me, you need to, when this is when I first started radio, he said, mm-hmm. you need to make a list of all the people that you need to meet. Mm-hmm. And um, your name was on the list. Well, that's an honor coming from him. Pat has told me similar things uh, his wife, and, uh-huh. and I think it was I think it was mutual respect because I, what I admired about Ron was whenever he did something, he did it. That was the first thing he did was, well, how does this impact my people? That mm-hmm. was his question. That's what he used his skill for, and that's why I don't understand, Janice, when people can go and claim they got everything on their own and don't feel an obligation or responsibility to uplift their people when they get in these positions they have access to. The reason you see me prepared, better prepared than anywhere when I go anywhere, is I feel like I give voice to people who would never get a chance to be on TV, mm-hmm. would never get a chance to write an article. And I mm-hmm. can't let them down. I can't. Mm-hmm. I cannot mm-hmm. let them down. So I, if I go in the room, if I go on a national TV program, there's no doubt. You better rest assured. I am better prepared than anybody in the room because I'm going to make sure of that. Not that I'm smarter, but I'm going to work harder. And so I am not going to go out there and embarrass my people. And that's why I am being a history major too. Oh, no, I'm going to be prepared. And I just think we can't afford any slip-ups. We can't afford to when we get these opportunities to blow them. We just can't. And that's, that's what drives me. It's like I can't – people are relying on me. They won't get a chance to give a speech. They won't get a chance to write. They won't get a chance to be on TV. They won't get a chance to be on radio. And is a, I am their ambassador. I grew up in a shotgun house. We moved to the housing project. And then, so if I can't represent them, who can? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's, that's, a, that's a, a wonderful insight that you have about your urgency. Let me ask you, George, about our community. I mean, mm-hmm. I've heard you 
uh, on Roland Martin and and uh, everywhere. You you've just been everywhere. Everywhere, but summarize for us what you think are the most urgent and pressing issues before us. Oh, I mean, we, we know you know the basic one, the housing and discrimination rates and all that kind of thing. I think one of the ones that we don't talk about much is passing on to the next generation the knowledge of this generation. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got to realize that more than half of our community was born after the March on Washington. They weren't born, more than half our population. So for them, uh, the civil rights movement was like a civil war was to us. It's ancient history. And so I think we have failed to do that. I don't blame the young people. I blame us. Uh, one thing I used to do when I was running the workshop in St. Louis and in, in, in D.C. and New York was I would, when we start each Saturday, I would start with an episode of Eyes on the Prize. So they never learned anything about journalism. They would learn something about their communities. And they would see the picture in the, in the till. And then they would want to go and, and read about it. So I, I think we have not passed that along. And the other thing I think is that I don't think we've passed along that. The, the work ethic. I mean, I think that uh, a lot of, I mean, I see it like that. Our office, the NEP office is over at Howard University. And these kids come in, they have all the opportunities that we never had growing up, uh, we thought. And they just kind of take it for granted. Or I don't know, one of the friends, Ron Nixon, he works for the New York Times. He's a class, he just shakes his head because most of the time they don't even turn into homework. And so I think we really miss one, not passing along the lessons about the civil rights movement, and pass along work ethic. And I think part of it is because we spoil them so much because we try to give them things we didn't have. And, mm-hmm. But what we need to give them is, 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 is a, a, a sense of, a, of hard work, a sense of commitment, and, yes, a sense of responsibility to help those who are the least among us. I, you know, we really can't. When we stop caring about that, and that's why it bothers me sometimes. I hear all these speeches about plume coming from the president, talking about the middle class, the middle class. I don't hear him say poor people. It's rare that I hear him say poor people. Mm-hmm. They, need, they need help more than anybody else. And so you know, I know that doesn't get you in vote, but they need your help. And that's why you ought to be there. That's why you should be there. And so this conversation about the middle class, commission on the middle class, I don't hear him say poor people. And he's using less than any modern Democratic president, the word poor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that is, George? I, I don't know, Janice. I, I, I don't know. I know part of the problem is the people around him. If you didn't go to Harvard or you didn't come go over to Chicago, you're not one of his advisors. And so part of the circle around him I don't think is really reflective of a broader community in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, Vern Jarrett, I mean, Vern Jarrett's former mother-in-law, uh, 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 Valerie, is, you know, grew up in Iran. She's born in Iran. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. And, and I'm not saying she's not black. I'm saying this experience. I don't know anybody real close to went to a historic black college. I don't. Uh-huh. And, and so uh-huh. it, I just think it just if he had a broader uh, segment of people around him, it would be different. Uh, I, I, I just don't know. It, it's, in a lot of ways, it's uh, I'm proud of a lot of things he's done. In a lot of ways, I'm disappointed. Uh huh. Uh huh. You know, I and the black I, people I, I don't I want live to in I, I live in Boston, and um, having uh, been uh, a student at MIT, uh, I spent, I mean, we, there were very few black students in the city, and so uh, you get an opportunity to be part of the climate and mm-hmm. environment of all the other institutions, 
And I think that there is a culturation that goes on uh, at Harvard that is is very different for black students, and that is um, this they there's there seems to be some general notion that um, it, it's almost overdrive of proving yourself, overdrive of um, blending in, overdrive of the icon that is uh, an Ivy League school. Right. And some and and and, and you know I I talked to Chuck Hamilton about this a lot. Uh, mm-hmm. this, this whole, pardon me? Yeah, I'm familiar with it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, but he did a so, Black Power book with uh, Stoker Carmichael in it, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it just, um, when you don't come from strong communities like your community, strong communities like my community, like I came from commu- community where there were uh, high achievers in in our community. I mean, the 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 president of the Harvard Foundation graduated from the Jim Crow segregated high school in my hometown. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, you, you get a sense that I am who I am and what I am is satisfactory. You need to be right. where I need to be. I don't need to be where <laughs> you need to be. <laughs> so, well, um, I went to Harvard one summer, but the thing about this, that hasn't always been the case. Look, W. Du Bois got his Ph.D. from Harvard in 1895. I mean, William Monroe Trotter, Phi Beta Kappa. William Monroe Trotter was editor of the Boston Guardian. And so when Booker T. Washington would show up and give a speech, he would put state bombs in churches so, so he wouldn't speak. These are both men who grew up in Harvard, pre-affirmative action, uh-huh. uh, but, didn't, but didn't forget who they were. They didn't mm-hmm. forget who they were. And so exactly. they can do that in 1895. They can do that at the turn of the century. They can do that in the ones that, that go to now who need to realize that they can also be who they are and, and not be duped into thinking they are anything but what they are. Uh-huh. And maybe our president went into Columbia, went into Harvard, really not understanding who he is, and as a result became very formidable in in that kind of environment. Um, I know that you're going to have to go back to the party. No, no, I don't. No, I don't. No, I don't. We, oh, you we'll don't. Be fine. Oh, because no. and you, I was going to tell you, go back in the party and tell them they always send me invitations to parties <laughs> that I can't come to, so they can get their countdown. Thank you very much. I'll but tell I wanted to though. talk to you about your books. Okay. You are author of Jake Gaither, America's Most Famous Black Coach and editor of the Affirmative Action Debate and the Best of Emerge magazine. But let's talk about Jake Gaither, America's most famous black coach, because it really caught my eye. Jake Gaither was my father's college roommate, and they played football together. And they were lifetime friends, yes. Um, uh, There was no Tallahassee, as far as I was concerned, without Jake Gaither. Uh, so I, it really caught my eye. I, I, I didn't know that you had written a book on Jake Gaither. How did you choose to write a book about oh. a football coach? Well, it's easy. It's easy. I played football. I played quarterback in high school. I played quarterback in college. And my first job was Sports Illustrated. But let me tell you how I got to Jake Gaither. When I was playing football in high school, everybody talked about Jake Gaither. He always said he wanted men agile, mobile, and hostile. And it, you uh-huh. go around the high school, you're on here, agile, mobile, hostile. So you, I heard about Jake Gaither in high school. 
and so went to Knoxville College and found out he had gone to Knoxville College. He and his brother. And he uh-huh. plays football uh-huh. in Knoxville. Uh-huh. And so I was uh-huh. the editor of the paper in Knoxville, so I started collecting stuff there. Then in the back of my mind, one day I might do something on this man, this, this Jay Gaither guy who keeps this ghost that keeps following me around. And, uh-huh. then I went to and you know, the other roommate, the other roommate was um, Cannibal Adley's father. Wow. Yeah. Matt, Matt yeah. Adley? Wow. And so yeah. I went there, and so when was supposed to I still had this Jay Gaither thing. And so I actually wrote it uh, in 19, uh, when I was 29 years old, and it got published when I was 30. I got turned down by 25 publishers, including the publisher company that eventually published the book. So I had sent it out, and a couple of years later I sent it out again and then uh, outlined and everything and the proposal. And so I have consequently have a, a frame, one letter saying, we don't want your book, and another one saying, here's a check. So that's how I got involved with Gates. Gates won 85% of his games over 25 years, never had a losing season, coached people like uh, Willa Gallimore, Bob Hayes, just had all mm-hmm. kinds of people who went to all pro and played the first integrated football game in the South in his yes. camp and won. And that was when he went to prove that black college football is as good as any football. And that was the epic thing about, about Gates. Uh-huh. It, was, it started in high school. It stalked me in college because I didn't know he went to the same college and then followed me in my career at Sports Illustrated, and that's why I had to do a book on Jake Gaither. Well, he was just a, a wonderful person, uh, a tough, tough coach, both on the moral barometer as well as the, the football field and the skills necessary to win. And I, I, just, I think that's just wonderful, and I'm going to pick up that book uh, sometime this week because I, I just I I didn't know. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, and, it's uh, out of print, but you can still get it on Amazon. In fact, uh, we're trying to do a movie. I actually got a script for it. Uh, Vernon Smith, who was Atlanta bureau chief for Newsweek for a long time, has actually done a script. We got a script. I own all the rights to the book. He has all the rights to the to the script, and we're trying to get it because see, we have not had a movie that really tells the story of black college football. And the one no. TV thing we did before was White Tiger, which is about grambling, starring Bruce Jenner, a white guy, about black college football. And yeah. so, so yeah. you know, it's hard to sell because this is a real deal, deal. but we really, that's what we really want to do. We want to get into a TV movie or, or made, for, 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 made for TV or even uh, theaters. But we actually got the script and got all the rights to it, and that's what we're trying to do now. Now, through the essays of your uh, book, The Affirmative Action Debate, mm-hmm. Did, mm-hmm. did you attend last week's Supreme Court um, discussion? Yeah, that one, that one the, uh, the both of the mission cases, uh, they were argued, and then the uh, Texas case. I've been to all of them. I was there for oral mm-hmm. arguments. Mm-hmm. In fact, What's I'm about your... to do a revision of the Affirmative Action book now. I'm about to update it. Uh, so I can oh, great. That, that's mm-hmm. great to hear. Uh, For those of you who are listening, it's called the Affirmative Action Debate. Uh, What's your sense? You know, I spent many years, um, at at one time I uh, was the uh, director, national director for a major corporation for their Affirmative Action and Equal Employment Opportunity uh, uh, Division. Mm -hmm. And... um, I have always said that affirmative action was the law that no one wanted to implement or enforce, and no one did. What's your take on that? 
Well, I think that one of the biggest myths about affirmative action is that it's for black people. And affirmative action has never been just for black people. Women have been included. The disabled have been included. Uh, people from different uh, national origins have been included. And so it was an inclusive program from the very, very beginning. And all it does, is, and, and I think this is how, to me, I think that the opponents of affirmative action have done a better job of, of misframing it in public debate and call it reverse racism. I, I always wonder what a reverse racism. I know what it was going in drive. I never seen it back up. So I don't know what <laughs> you mean by reverse racism. And so uh, I, I think they've done a better job of misframing and saying what it is when it's very, very basic. You know, it, it says you own basically you, you had to be qualified and that you can use race, gender, you name it, fill in the blank, as one of many factors when you're considering qualified people. And even with that, you look at the numbers. You you played a clip earlier and saying how different things are. You nowhere near, you know, and close to to equality. And so, just because you can, can if you if you exclude people all of life for centuries based on race, then why can't you use race to consider a considered as one factor when you deal with qualified people as you win many factors? And that's all it is. It's not any more uh, difficult than that. But the opponents want to call it a reverse racism. They want to use the 14th Amendment, Equal Protection Clause, and you discriminate against white people. You look at numbers, any any kind of indication, you can see that any all the indicators show that white folks are doing quite well, even with affirmative action. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but you it's know, let me run this, let me run this by you uh, mm-hmm. in regard to affirmative action uh, in employment that I, I – I would reason to say that black people were reluctant to advocate, to raise, and to aggressively push issues of affirmative action because the, it, it was institutionalized as something about people who were inferior to sure. the standards. Sure, Did, sure. It's the stigma. It, it, Yes. Mm-hmm. Did you did you get that as you were putting together uh, these essays on 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 the issue? Well, I didn't. Have, this came about because we had done a cover story on affirmative action uh, for Emerge, and an agent contacted me and said it wanted me to edit anthologies with people pro and con on the subject. And I said, fine, I did. Um, the stigma factor is certainly there, and it's because. Blacks have allowed whites to put them on defenses, saying that's the only reason you're here. When nine times out of ten, you'd probably be twice as qualified to even be in the same room with them. And so, but that, you know, whites got to put everything they fail to do, they got to say, well, firm action gave this person that promotion because otherwise it would go on to me. You had no blacks that weren't getting the promotion, so, what, what, so why all of a sudden it's because of affirmative action? So I think that some some people have allowed us to say, oh, well, you know, it's, it's a stigma, but they don't say it's a stigma if you get extra points uh, for being a child of alumni, a kid of alumni. Look at George Bush. Mm-hmm. Uh, his daddy went to Yale. His daddy's daddy went to Yale. So he got extra points when he applied to Yale. Now, as I said, both my, neither my parents finished high school. So if anybody needs extra points, it ought to be me. But they don't <laughs> get it like that. They make sure the alumni gets it. If you, your folks donate a lot of money, you get extra points. All kinds of ways that you get extra credit, but it's only when it concerns race that people want to uh, oppose it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, 
um, I'm 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 thinking through this whole issue of what you mentioned earlier about how we can begin to energize uh, a more cohesive strategy in our communities about how we can empower this generation it's not only of young people because i'm i'm kind of reluctant to put the onus on young people but of young professionals right. mm-hmm. uh to begin to take on the role of community voice community advocate i have some In, ideas um, i have some okay. ideas okay i was going to okay, ask look. you for your ideas okay look I mentioned earlier, you start talking about awards and all, I said the things that most satisfying and what I felt proudest of was my work in these workshops for high school kids. You know, like one of my kids who ended up being the editor of Lando newspaper, uh, Jackie Reed, you hear on the radio, Tom Joyner. I mean, they've been editing paper and sports magazines around the country, but I knew them in high school as my high school students. Now, if, what I did in journalism and, and the, the black NABJ chapters that I worked with in those three cities, we're saying, look, if every profession, every black profession saying, look, we're going to have workshops for high school kids, even that may be late, maybe junior high. And our program would be like seven or eight Saturdays on, on Saturdays that professional journalists would, would all day use a local college and teach kids all the skills necessary to become journalists. That's what we basically what we did. Now, if we did that for journalism, suppose the lawyers did a workshop. Poor accountants did a workshop. Every profession did that. By the mm-hmm. time our kids got ready to go to college, can you imagine where they would be? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think the key is, is, is to teach what you know. And I don't know math. I don't know science. I know journalism. If mm-hmm. I teach what I know, and if every profession took up the responsibility of passing, uh, of training the next generation to follow after them, I think I think we could make some substantial changes mm-hmm. in our community because Absolutely. one, you got people looking up to you who want to do what you're doing, so you have their attention already. Mm-hmm. Now, every time I'm I mention it, nobody's ever taking me up on it. Something this. similar. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm very concerned about the communications skills of young people in our community, and I'm working with Suffolk University Law School and Emerson College uh, Division of Public Speaking um, to put together a citizenship school, which in, which would include two things. One is uh, in terms of present speech presentation, learning some of the great speeches of African Americans in history, and the mm-hmm. skills that go with orating. The other is to understand how citizenship works, to understand the right. laws around voting, the laws around getting a license, the laws around, and, and bringing in some young lawyers uh, to help us uh, do these, this series of workshops, but it would be an ongoing thing. And, and I think, and I encourage people in our audience every week to begin to look at what you do locally is much right. more important than us sitting around having a discussion about what the president said yesterday and what John Boehner said the day after. <laughs> uh, so that's a wonderful idea, and I'm not sure if um, people are getting 
that that's empowerment. You know, I've given a speech to a lot of different professional organizations. I've not had one to take me up on it. But I can't worry about that. i got to make well, sure that I continue to do what I do. Like I said, when my students go out and they finish and they join the profession, I had several of them, at least a half dozen of them, when they became journalists, they started workshops like the one I had taught them in. Like mm-hmm. uh, Mark Russell, who uh, became editor of Atlanta Sentinel, he was in my high school workshop, went to Cleveland, started a workshop in Cleveland. There's another friend of mine, Chris Moore, he was on my staff in St. Louis. He went to Pittsburgh. He started a program that's now 30 years old in, in Pittsburgh, 25 years old. Again, aim for high school kids on Saturdays, getting them ready for the world. And we just right did that. Yeah, and like I said, the first thing I did was show, show eyes on the prize because you learn black history and journalism, you're two for one. Mm-hmm. Well, but we basic stuff, we got away from the basic stuff. We have gotten away, Janet, from basic stuff. Men and women, I mentioned earlier, these are people who took time with us. They mm-hmm. considered that, that, you know, your dad not home, doesn't matter, I'm daddy. You know, everybody in the housing project, Mr. Way, he's dad to everybody, it doesn't matter. You don't get hung up on that because they're still male figures in our life. And I, I went to North Carolina AT one time, I spoke. And afterwards, about a half dozen young brothers came to me in tears. And they said, well, you know, uh, Mr. Curry, uh, my father's not home and this and that. And I said, well, hold on, hold on. Let, let, let's, let's, let's examine this. I said, uh, you ever heard of Frederick Dulles? Yeah, yes, sir, yes, sir. I said, well, you know, his daddy wasn't home. I said, you ever heard of W.B. divorce? I said, yes, sir, yes, sir. Well, his daddy wasn't home. I said, you ever heard of Ida B. Wells Barnett? I said, her daddy wasn't home. You ever heard of Jackie Robinson? His daddy wasn't home. Jesse Jackson, daddy was married, lived next door, then pregnant his teenage mother. Al Sharpton, daddy wasn't home. Barack Obama, daddy wasn't home. My daddy wasn't home. Welcome to the club. They need to hear that. They need uh-huh. to hear that. And they need yeah. to hear it from us because you take a negative and make it a positive. If you're going to sit around and drop your head and drag your butt, saying, oh, my daddy, you know, someone don't need to be home. It was good that mine wasn't there because when I remember him, is domestic abuse and drawing a knife, my mother. That's what I remember about my father. So to tell me my father needed to be home, no, he didn't need to be there. He needed to be somewhere, but not there. And mm-hmm. these, these, we need to candor, need this kind of candor of black men talking to black boys and black women talking to black girls because you can explain it to them in a certain way that they only hear it differently. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they will. And they will. Now, you are in and out of the White House. And I'm wondering, although I know that, I mean, I was in a meeting with uh, Sean Donovan, the secretary of of HUD, on Thursday, Mm -hmm. and I had an opportunity to corner him for about 15 or 20 minutes and talking Mm -hmm. to him about some of the issues. And one of the things that I brought up was I'm not understanding why this president is not as you said, talking about poor people and their disenfranchisement and presenting, and the cabinet is not presenting the kinds of issues that he needs to be pressed on. I right. just had a sense that that's not happening, that that, he, that you, you are part of a cabinet that's are just yes people. And mm-hmm. he was looking at me through his glasses like, who the <laughs> hell is this woman? <laughs> That's why we don't talk to you people. <laughs> um, and, uh, I mean, I was one of the people who proposed 
to HUD about 25 years ago when they started their HOPE 6 program that mm-hmm. if these units are going to cost $175,000 to build in the city of Boston, why not give the apartment to the people if they're going to live there for a lifetime, have them own it, and then exactly. their Section 8 voucher would be the maintenance trust for the mm-hmm. property. Um, and I never got an answer from Andrew Cuomo on that particular one in a workshop he and I were participating in when he was Secretary of HUD, because housing is a real big uh, point of contention for me because I think that there are just three things, how we educate, how we feed, and how we house uh, poor people. Right. Uh, So... You know, and then there, of course, is the underlying economic infrastructure that we have not created, and it is at risk more and increasingly more today than it was when I was having that conversation 20 years ago. But if you were to be able to spend some time uh, with Barack Obama, what would be your counsel to him? Well, first of all, he gives interviews to everybody else except the black newspapers, the black press. Uh, we have made requests after requests, and he has turned them down. But I can see he can go in any comedian show, he and his wife. They can do push-ups and, on, on, and they clown around. Uh, I, I can't count all the interviews he's given to 60 Minutes. Uh, but he will not sit down with, with, with NNPA with almost 20 million readers, with almost 200 newspapers, and grant us an exclusive interview. Has not, uh, and I suspect he will not. I don't know why, uh, but I don't. You know, part of it I know he he feels he can just take it for granted. He does, part of it he he's right in the sense that black people are going to vote for him and support him regardless, and that's wrong. I mean, you can you get a little bit upset when you critique him, um, and he should be critiqued like everybody else. So, the former chairman, Cleveland, the former chairman of the Congressional Black Caucus, said, had there been a white president, we'd march around the White House. Well, I mean, what an indictment. You mean tell me that your black people are not being served right because this guy has a black skin, that you will not stand up for your people? I don't care if he spoke about it. You should have him and you should critique him. And so I find him black and on a lot of things, and I find him being very good on other things. Uh, but he's going to get it from me. He's going to get it balanced. And I'm not afraid to critique him. I think one of the wickedest things I am concerned about, and I was certainly will talk to him about, is that he gives away the house before he negotiates. I wrote a column one time called uh, the Apprentice Negotiator. He gets into these negotiations, and like now, I mean, even now, I mean, he stood up to the Republicans. But you mark my word. I got a call on my website now. Talking about Obama and, and Republicans is what I call them. Uh, okay. that, that he's going to put Medicaid on the table, he put Social Security on the table. And what do Democrats stand for? I don't know. You know what Republicans want. They're very, very clear. They're willing to shut down the government for it. What do the Democrats stand up for? I haven't found that out. And when people find out, please let me know. Well, how can, um, how can we break the logger jam. Where is the place that we enter to begin to break this logger jam, this this 
in, in this political in, uh, vast land in, of impotence that we find yeah. ourselves. Well, good question. Good question. Uh, first of all, I think we put too much emphasis on politics. We need to be putting a lot. I more am emphasis so glad on, to hear you say that because I say that every every day. No Go question. Ahead. No question about it. Because and, and what do we have to show for it? Uh, think about it. I mean, it, we have more than a trillion dollars a year annual spending, and what do we get for it in return? Now, think about it. all elected officials we elected in the South. Most, almost every every state, southern state is Republican controlled. So the Democrats have zero power in them. Even though they have some numbers, they're meaningless because they have no power. They've been neutered. Look, if we put our money and pool our money, develop our institutions, we can buy all the policies we want. You rent them, lease them, and then cancel the lease. <laughs> but we have put all our eggs in this one basket and hoping to transfer in our life. And I think we have far more impact. We put more emphasis on the economic part. I think ultimately that's our answer, not politics. And, and even when you deal with the politics, we put too much emphasis, as you said, on, on the national. It's a local. People forget the civil rights movement was not Dr. King. It was Fred Scholl's work in the Birmingham. Mm-hmm. It was people in Montgomery at the local level. Dr. King came in later on after they had done the work. And I still contend that you force and work, make your changes on a local level. Don't be crying about, crying about Jesse or Al not doing this. They don't make policy in your community. You do that. They'll come in when the cameras don't work. When the cameras come, they'll be there. But the change has to come with us, and we have to accept that responsibility. Mm-hmm. You wrote in 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 your your article on um, at Curry Reports back in August something that was just so profound, and you reminded us. Um, that we need to be demanding minimum wage uh, to be increased um, by $2 an hour. And you reminded us that that is what Dr. King was about at the time of his death. And for those of you who are listening, you can go to georgecurry.com and read all the articles that George Curry has read uh, has written for NMPA um, and, and I'm referring to his column, Marching Orders for the Future. And, and, and you're absolutely right that we have got to be put our capital in places where it's going to have the maximum import. Yeah, and, yeah. And, 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 and many times that's at the local level because, as I said at the election of Barack Obama, that the White House, has never been the place where we find our positive transformations. The White no, House no is not question known. about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and, and 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 look, the, the thing about it, this, what I just don't like about this 50th anniversary of, uh, observation march uh, of March on Washington. You know, they talk about Dr. King. I, I, I hate when January 15th come around, January 20th come around because I hate it. I have a dream speech more. You think Dr. King didn't do a thing but sleep? And mm-hmm. he did much more than that. When he, he was preparing a poor people march to come and disrupt Washington, D.C. That's what he was doing when he died. The last speech he gave was talking about economic empowerment and strengthening our black banks and our black institutions and our insurance companies. Go back and read the speech. That's what he was talking about. 
Yet we get duped into thinking that he, all he talked about was a dream and he slept all his life. That's not Martin Luther King. I had the privilege of hearing him speak in my little hometown, and he was not about dreaming. He was about making your dreams come true, and he did never forgot poor people. Mm-hmm. He was in mm-hmm. Memphis to help sanitation workers in Memphis. He was talking about a poor people march. That's if it's serious about being true to his legacy. That's what they'll do, but you don't mm-hmm. hear it. Well, it, it's it's clear that we have to go back to the old um, marching orders, as as you've written about. Let me ask you about your projections. Um, I know that I am pretty much getting very nervous that I don't have enough time to do all the things that I want to do at the at my age. Mm-hmm. Uh, Every time I look around, somebody's asking me when I'm retiring. I'm never retiring. They're going to have to I'm live with me. I'm going to feel the same me. way. They're going to have to live with me. But <laughs> what America do you see in tw- for tw- 2025? Well, I, I tell kids when I go speak, I do a lot of public speaking around the country. And if I'm on a university, I'll say, you know, I, I hear a lot of young people say they wish they could uh, have been part of the civil rights movement. And I said, relax, don't worry, you'll get your chance. It Mm -hmm. seems that everything we fought for, look at all the voter suppression movement around the country, everything we fought for, it seems like we've got to fight for them all over again. And so I don't see us moving forward uh, in any considerable rate unless you have that same intensity that we had to gain what we got. We're talking about protecting gains that we had. We're talking about basic stuff that Mm -hmm. that we thought we had won. Voting? Mm-hmm. The United States has the worst voting of any industrialized country in the world. We're the only, only mm-hmm. industrialized country without nasty health insurance. I mean, that's how backwards we spend more money than any other country on it. These are just basic fundamental things. And I just think that uh, I'm, I'm opposite by nature. Otherwise, you wouldn't keep out here fighting this fight. But you think you can bring about change, but it's going to have to be some consistency. There to be determination, and, and, and you got to really go back to what we talked about earlier, having an obligation to uplift your people when we get in these positions that we can help people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I, I just mean, can't, understand, I can't understand on the issue of medic, uh, Medicare, on the issue of Social Security, <laughs> on the issue of health care, uh, why our community is not at, out and at arms about what we, not only what we we will lose, and I, I do believe that this president will capitulate, he will cave yep. in, Guaranteed. Guaranteed. and um, he will compromise poor people away. Uh, I, I see it coming. But I don't understand is our own response to this threat that we have been pretty much we have been vocal about what we lose, but we have not been vocal about what we want. And what to put that in perspective, we rely on Social Security for a larger share of our retirement. In fact, some people, a lot of African Americans, that's all they have. That's right. And so, that's right. So you, so, and you paid into this. They didn't give us to, give us to you. You paid into it. And, and, so and what we, we forget it should be is non-negotiable. That it, should, it doesn't belong on the table. 
That's, that's not right. what's costing. That's not running the deficit. It's not. That's right. If they can and what we forget from Social Security to pay for everything else. What we forget is that people like your mother, for many many mm-hmm. years, their employers pl- did not follow the law and pay into Social Security for domestics. So we have two or three generations of seniors who have six or seven years where they get no credit. So their Social Security income is $600 a a month, and that is the only source of their income. No, no question about it. Disproportionately, no, no question about it. Mm-hmm. And, and like I said, and, and you're talking about the president capitulation. This is why it's so important. These are these are the things that are going to be on the table, and they shouldn't be on the table. One, as I said, Social Security, Medicaid is fine. Where's you know the tweaking is basic, but the Republicans want to replace that with a voucher. They want to privatize Social Security, and mm-hmm. and and, and it tell you the attitude that, that Obama has. He gave an interview, um, I think about a week ago Tuesday. And he said uh, in an interview with the, the TV station out of uh, New York, WABC, I believe it was, and he said, they were talking about the shutdown and stuff, he said um, that, that basically whatever re- budget we get is going to be a Republican budget. We have to unaccept that, and they're going to have cuts for Democrats. They're not going to lie. Well, I, I just, and, and that jumped out at me, and Janice, because I said, wait a minute. He's head of the executive branch. The Senate is controlled by Democrats. And only the House are controlled by, is controlled by Republicans. And if you look at the last election, more they got more Democratic votes in the House members than Republicans. So what do you mean this has to be a Republican budget when they only control one region, one stool? It's three-legged stool. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But he's already given in. He's already given in. Mm-hmm. And we're mm-hmm. going to see some cuts in programs that are affecting people, particularly our people, and he gives away the house before you go and start negotiating. And so he stood up to him this time, and he said, basically, I'm not going to negotiate with a gun in my head. But now you take the gun down, I'll give you my money. That's essentially where it is. And black people don't like to hear it because I hear it all the time. They don't think you should critique, not criticize, critique this president because he's black. Tough stuff. I don't care what you talk about. <laughs> he does something to hurt our people, just, just be prepared because I'm going to say it. Yes. Um, and I can document it. He's a he's a gifted orator and just a half ass politician. That's that's the only thing that I can say that has a, that can account for the way in which he has operated over both terms of his presidency. Um, I'm he wants he to be liked. Yeah, I'm surprised he went to politics. Look, if you look at his appointment. Now, we don't talk, we're talking about permanent cabinet positions, not the one like you and the ambassador who can be a member of the cabinet if the president decides, and if not, doesn't have to next term. Of the permanent cabinet position, he's appointed more Republicans than he has blacks. That's right. I mean, that, you got you got to look at the record. You know, you, you doesn't count because you can elevate it or you can put it down. Uh, uh, the, the director of uh, uh, environment protection, EPA director, you made a cabinet letter, next year it won't be. I'm talking about permanent cabinet position. He's been so interested in appointing rep- Republicans than he has African Americans. That tells you a whole lot. That tells you a whole lot. And but so look at, I wish he developed a backbone, but I just haven't seen it. Well, I mean, even if you think about uh, his nomination, his judge, ju- federal judge nominations, 
he has not been an advocate for his own nominees. Now, let me talk about the impact of that. Now, think about this. When Republicans, you name them, Reagan, Bush, any of them, when they push for judicial appointments, you know every one of them is streamed right conservative. If a Democrat goes in, I'm talking about Clinton and Obama, they claim they go for a centrist person. Well, if you've got a person in the middle and you got somebody to the right, you're you going to lose still. They're afraid to nominate and certainly will not stand up for, for anybody uh, that they got to fight for, not who's black in particular, uh, for, for these judgeships. And if you can approve extremely conservative, then you should be fighting for people who are extremely liberal. And not just saying, well, they won't give us that, so we'll just go in the middle. Republicans don't have that conversation. They tell you our plan is to control, our number one priority is control the judiciary. So we have a federal society where we have people in law school and we start training them. And then they have law firms where they can clerk. And we have judges they can clerk. So we will control the whole judiciary with people of our ideology. And the problem with the left is they have not counted. Look at all the think tanks, the effective think tanks. It's basically the right. Crafting and affirmative action, the whole debate that we talked about, it's, it's done by the right. They, the left is doing a very, very poor job, and that's why we've seen the right get away with so much. Well, they've got the, they've got the whole bank, and he's yes. allowed uh, yep. I, 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 I just have to continue to say that while he's a wonderful political orator, he is not a politi- uh, uh, an outstanding political craftsman, as they would have you to believe. The, yeah, the I, I'm, other- I'm, yeah, I'm surprised he won the politics. I am really shocked that he won the politics. He was a great law professor. He's perfect for that. Uh, but he doesn't seem to have a stomach for politics, which is a rough and tumble business. Well, I think he, I mean, we hear the Republicrats talking about the, the as you call them, the T-publicans, talking about the grand bargain. I <laughs> think that there is a grand bargain already folded and put in the inter, inner pocket of this president, and he pulls it out as he begins to... Uh, assess some of these issues, reminding him of the bargain that he made, and that well, and, and, and that's the nature yeah, of politics. Yeah, but he's he's given, as I said, he's given the house. He's already agreed to give a thing before he can get to the bargaining table. Well, I if, think if because it's not given in, the not deal is already in his in. inner pocket. The deficit is going down. The deficit is loaded. It's been in recent years, decades. It's going down. In, in, a, in a time like this, it's not the most important thing in the world. People are out of work. People need food. People need basic essentials. You ought to be willing to stand up in a country where people are in need like it is and going through these kind of times. It's, you know, and then this is so important to them, but they're willing to go off the cliff by closing down the federal government and not raising the debt ceiling. That's how concerned they are about it. It's a fake issue. It's one that needs to deal with our spending. Of course we need to deal with it. But you don't go cutting Social Security when it's not a problem, Medicaid and Medicare when they're not the problem. That's not what a real spending is. At the same time, you don't want any responsibility on the top 1%. You want more tax cuts for them. It's insane. 
What's on the horizon for you, George? Oh, I'm like you. Like I said, I ain't re- what is retired? <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, you know, what I feel guilty about that is that I haven't written enough books. I've, I've written three, and I've, I have contributions in four others. I'm writing now a book on Emmett I feel guilty because I haven't done it yet. Uh, I want to write some more books. I want. I don't know why I got this number 12 in my head. I need to do 12 books. I got to get going. Uh, just that, I got more yesterday than I have tomorrow. So I'm 66 years old. When people say, how old are you? I say, I'm approaching 50, but I don't tell them which direction. And uh-huh, so uh-huh. Uh, I, I, I really want to write some more books. Uh, I don't see myself retiring. Why, reti- why would you retire from something you enjoy doing? I can write as long as I possibly can. That's, that's what I want to do. And, um, and, and continue to train young people. And help where where I can on that. I just uh, this is what I'm going to be. This is what I was born to do, and this is what I'm going to. I keep the bucket. This is you'll say. Well, he wrote this is his last story. He wrote. He was still writing when the old man was going out the door, uh, because I enjoy doing this. I, I feel sorry for people who haven't found their calling in life, who say, "Thank God it's Friday." Instead of, "Thank God it's Monday." I've been very very blessed in that way, and I want to continue to use my skills that way. And uh, more than anything else, I want to write more books. Wow. I would like to see you write a book about this president. No one waste my time. Well, I think that, you know, um, we need to hear a clear voice about what happened here. Yeah. You know. Well, let me, let me, um, I better finish my immaterial book. I've been promising myself I haven't done. <laughs> well, I'm certainly looking forward uh, to that. Yeah. I did a lot of research, and I talked to his mother before. I interviewed her a lot before she died, and um, have a father, father's military records, and uh, and some things happened there. Uh, uh, like his, I don't know. Most people don't know that his father was was hung uh, for allegedly raping a white woman in Italy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in the course, right before the trial, the trial, uh, all these segregation senators went pull his military records, and you know, basically like a genetic. So this is what black men do, boys do, 14 years old. And so it's a lot of stuff, because that, that was such a case, because that, to me, Emmett Till was supposed to send a message to all of us that if you whistle to the white woman, it can cost you your life. And that's how they were so determined to do so much to preserve the southern way of life. Mind you, they were not against integration, because white men were taking advantage of raping black women the whole while, so they weren't against that. They were against that black man being with that white woman, and that's what they were obsessed about. Mm-hmm. And that's the basis of segregation. Um, America Dilemma talks about that in this whole series they did uh, right before, by around 19, late 1920s. Is the South, the whole thing about segregation is all about, quote, protecting the dignity of the white woman while white men raped black women at will, and there was nothing their husband could do about it. Uh, but 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 they were somehow want to protect the sanctity of the white woman as though she's any more special than our black women. Uh huh. Uh huh. That's what it really break it down. That's really what it was all about. Really, what it was all about, George Curry. <laughs> it has been my pleasure to have this conversation with you. I have been looking for this for a long time. Um. And 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 I I I I do thank you uh, for your service to our community, uh, for your professional model for 
for our our community of journalists, and I know that you have had such impact on so many people. I mean, I talk to a lot of journalists um, all the time, and you are one of the people who have been role models for this new generation of, of journalists and writers and people who could figure out that they could aspire to make it their life's work. And so I am just so grateful to you and what you have done with your life and that you are a son of the the South and uh, just a shining model for all of us to... I wanted to have this conversation about you uh, because um, we need to know that what what every black person in this country has done in surviving and in thriving is that it comes from within. Well, I appreciate your kind words. My mother would love to hear them. <laughs> my mother, my mother, my mother. She's my biggest cheerleader. <laughs> and we're going to take we're going to take one uh, call. I thought I was closing this out, and and I think I know okay. who this it's okay. is. It's okay. Okay. Good evening, seven seven three. You're on the air with George Curry. Good evening, Janice, and um, good evening to your guest, Mr. Curry. Uh, I am I am honored to speak with Mr. Curry, as I'm always honored to speak with you. Um, on this, thank you, Alpo. Um, on this Barack Obama scenario, mm-hmm. uh, Barack Obama is a black man in skin tone only. He never grew up. He never understood his black. He didn't have the trials and tribulations of growing up black. He was raised by white grandparents and a white mother. He was privileged to some of the things that uh, we we would only dream of. Mm -hmm. So we see him as a politician. And I've said this and I've thought this for a while. You know, there's always been this scenario of Democrats and Republicans are all the same. And I'm saying, I'll say this, the Democratic Party has been infiltrated by corporate Democrats. Now, we have our blue dogs, but they have also slid in some corporate Democrats. Bill Clinton was a corporate Democrat. Right. Blue dogs, yes. Rahm Emanuel ushered in a wave of blue dogs. But these corporate Democrats hide amongst us like, Schumer, Dick Durbin, and all of these other so-called Democrats who have this fidelity to the corporations and Wall Street first. When we see Barack Obama offering up chain CPI and cutting things from Medicare, he has the wind at his back, but he won't move forward with it. Because he knows that is not what corporate America wants. So he's not willing to totally give away the fort or the entire house, but he's willing to help Republicans give away bits and pieces, and they'll work on it. See, Hillary is right behind him. 
and she'll finish giving up everything else. If he can't see that these cuts in government and public workers has cost 900,000 jobs, and when I say 900,000 jobs, I've always been under the impression that black people use government jobs as a vehicle to get to the middle class. And he's allowed them to cut those with the hostage taking. So when we see him as a black man, I only see him as never having lived that black life. I'm here in Chicago where he came. He had never been a real Chicagoan. Not like a Harold Washington who knew what it was to be and live as a black man in this city and in this country. Barack Obama has had this, uh, they call it a, what do they call it, a silver spoon in his mouth? Well, right. let's just say he, he had silver taps on his shoes. Because at some point we have to realize he can't save us. He's not going to save us. And as we as a people, we have, if we have allowed the oppressor to seize control of how we think and what we think. We sit in front of a television, and we allow that to persuade us, to win a perception. We jump up and down and we kick, and I'm mostly politics. But economics come from those politics, and it's the economic part. If, if we don't have, and you're absolutely right about these think tanks, Think tanks are basically all Republican. And, I, Janice, I think I, I mentioned that we had one, but I realized we have more than one progressive think tank. But we have nowhere near the amount that the right has. And they not only have the think tank, and they fund them because they have all the money. Yeah. So we have to... I would say hunker down and be afraid, be very afraid of this grand bargain and all of the things that this president will bring us. As proud as black people um, are to have. This is Alpha of the Alpha Show at TruthWorks Network, George, and he has been consistently um, one that has, offered this stream of of clarity about this administration. Alpha, thank you for your call, and we're going to get a response from George, and then we're going to have to move into a segment on this show. Alpha, you're absolutely right. Just I would interject that we have to be very careful about characterizing him as a black man. Um, <clears throat> under my definition, he's, he's an African-American, and his engagement in our community was that he had a job in the black community of Chicago and um, obviously um, it wasn't long enough. George, you want to respond to Alpha? Well, first of all, he, he, he knows what he's talking about. You know, and, and that's what I like when you talk about somebody it's not just opinion. You talk about change CPI, how the president planned to change things. That's exactly right. The, the, the only thing I would add is, you know, as disappointed as I am we are with Obama, I wish we had some viable alternatives, but we don't. So people will say, oh, you, Democrats take blacks for granted. 
But what did Republicans offer? Every Republican in the House and the Senate got an F on the last NAACP report card. Not a single one who got a D. You see, you get one every once in a while, get a C or D, one even a C every once in a while. But every member, Republican member of the House and the Senate got Fs on the NAACP report card, things that we consider important to us. So that's no viable alternative. You know, you don't just go there and somebody say, you got an outreach program, and they're reaching out for your neck. And so that's not a viable alternative. The alternative is, as we said earlier, one, we have put too much emphasis on the politics part. If we do what we need to do with the economics, the politics will follow. And that's where we need to be putting a lot more emphasis. We can see some immediate changes there instead of this continual frustration about the politics. Well, there you have it. Um, and I'm hoping that we can make the sea change. I, I, I yes, continue to push it. <laughs> uh, but, you know, we're not investing in those things which would help to empower and transform where we are in 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 this uh, in this nation, George Curry. Thank you so much. Will you come back? Absolutely, Jen. And will Absolutely. you come to Boston and do a workshop for my kids? I, I, I mean, tell you actually, what. we're we're um, we're we are uh, Emerson College is a wonderful. Um, Center of Communications, and they're working with me to try to get a grant uh, from uh, a number of places to to do this workshop because our kids are being gobbled up in charter schools, the best and the brightest in the city of Boston, and they're being guided by what I call the prison industrial complex rules and regulations and they're not learning how to be citizens and how to be good black citizens with a sense of obligation to the community. So I'll contact you about that. But thank you so very much. I have so enjoyed and been so enlightened uh, by our discussion tonight. And thanks to Al well, for his talk. Well, I've enjoyed it, too. Look, t- get to university, one of those universities, invite me to come up to speak. And then I can do your I part will. free. <laughs> I will. And they've got a deal. We've got a deal. Okay. I All will. Right, thank I you. will I work on that time. right away, and it'll be interesting <laughs> with what we're That's doing. Your <laughs> Have okay. a good weekend, George, and okay, I look too. forward to having you back. Thank you oh, so very much. You're welcome. Bye-bye. And thank all of you for, for uh, joining in on this discussion. What a good call from Alpha. I tell you. Uh, we just have a wonderful, we're going to take a little break. We're going to do a little uh, Derek Bell because we are doing something, the new, the November book for Our Common Ground, Faces at the Bottom of the Well, The Permanence of Racism by Derek Bell. He is uh, the, uh, was a professor, uh, often credited for helping lay the foundation for critical race theory. And when we come back from break, I'll tell you more. You're listening to Our Common Ground. We'll be right back. So I'm asking you for the truth. I know the truth. I know enough. And any minute, any second now, so will the rest of planet Earth. So what I'm asking you is, what is your end game? This. Tuned 
our common ground, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. I'm Janice Grant, giving voice to the black truth of America. Our common ground, broadcasting free, bold, and black. Each Saturday, 10 p.m. Pausing at our common ground for a moment of deeper consciousness. At our common ground, freeing our black mind and opening our black eyes. One of the things I think is that we have mischaracterized it. We've misdiagnosed it, if you will. For years and years, we thought that racism was an aberration, a defect on the American scene, one that was a holdover from slavery, one that we had the tools to correct through law, and one that there was a desire to correct. Um, and it's taken us a long time to recognize that that was a wrong diagnosis that uh, racism is an important stabilizing uh, function, serves a, a stabilizing function in a society that is built on property. And in a society where a great many whites don't have any property to speak of, certainly don't have as much as those on the top, what this society has given them from the time of slavery to the present is a sense of property in their whiteness that their skin color enables them to somehow identify uh, and live vicariously the lives of those on the top, as also through the soap operas and the tabloids and the, and the hopes through the uh, lotteries, and to feel superior to blacks who, whatever their status, are deemed on, on the bottom. George Curry.com, 
and blackpressusa.com, we should be supporting the journalists who give voice to our uh, community and the challenges we face. Uh, Professor Derek Bell, uh, who was born in 1930, was our deeper consciousness voice uh, tonight. He was the first tenured African American professor of law at Howard at, at Harvard University Law School, and largely credited as one of the originators of the critical race theory. And here at our common ground, we're starting a new feature, and that is that we're starting to read. We don't read enough, and the November book that we're going to discuss with a couple of scholars on race uh, theory in December. So you have to finish reading this book by the first Saturday in December as Derek Bell faces at the bottom of the well. Faces at the bottom of the well. And that is the Our Common Ground reading for November. Thank you all so much for being with us. We hope you have a good weekend. Don't forget that we will be here next Saturday with David Eichard, Professor David Eichard, Associate Professor of African American Literature at Florida State University, and his interests include black gender studies, cultural criticism, hip-hop culture, and post-racial um, theories and politics. Um, David has been with us before, and we really look forward to having him come back. We look forward to you coming back. Join us on Facebook, on Twitter. We're on Tumblr. We're on Pin Interest, and our website is OurCommonGround.com. Good night, folks. Have a great week. Don't forget, Wednesday, Soul of Fire, Friday, The Alpha Show on TruthWorks Network at 10 p.m., and The I Declare Show, Saturday Friday and Saturday brunch with India Declared Blog Talk Radio. I'm Janice Graham. Will the revolution be violent? Uh, it depends. It depends upon the, uh, those who uh, unjustly hold power. And uh, we've never seen them uh, pass power, you know, without struggle, even though they've unjustly uh, acquired it. Is there a place in the world where socialism, communism, um, equality exists and successfully? Let me answer your question in a philosophical manner and then come to it practically. Uh, the error that we make in judging systems is that we judge the adherence and not the principles. Not too long ago a man came to tell me uh, that socialism was dead, you know, so I told him, oh, really? He said, yes. He said, you're still a socialist? I said, yes. He said, why? I said, I'm intelligent. He said, but it's dead. It's buried. Gorbachev. Didn't you hear about it? I said, oh, that. I said, no. That's not uh, death. That's just betrayal, you know. And uh, he said, what do you mean? I said, that socialism cannot die. He said, no, I saw it. These people in Russia, they gave it up. You know, I said, no, uh, you cannot judge socialism by socialists. He said, what did you say? I said, you cannot judge socialism by socialists. He said, how much you judge? I said, by its principles. It's only by its principles. He couldn't understand anything, so I asked him, do you judge Christianity by Christians? Uh, he took a breath here. 
No. <laughs> we judge Christianity by principles, the thought, deeds, words, and actions of Jesus Christ, peace be upon his name. That's how we judge Christianity, not even by Judas, not even by the Pope. It's judged by its principles. So uh, socialism, even if it isn't working now, will not deter socialists from striving to arrive at it. I have been uh, around American churches a lot in my life, and uh, to be quite honest, it's difficult for me to find genuine Christians in these churches. But in no way does this diminish my enthusiasm for Christianity. And certainly as a, a good Christian, it is my responsibility to uphold the principles of Christianity amidst all of those who betray these principles. So even if there's no uh, Christian church in the world, I do not believe that it cannot be. I know it will be. So I know socialism will come about. To more precisely answer your question, there are countries that have made a lot of headway. Of course, we can look at Cuba, right uh, south of us here. And I uh, just leave that one as an example. Uh, Cuba still continues with all of its problems to occupy itself with the poor. America is the richest country in the world. Cuba is the poorest country in the world. But Cuba, everyone has free medicine, free medical attention, even though it's the poorest country in the world. So it's not a question of money, it's a question of determination and will to hammer out the injustices in societies. And that's why socialism will be inevitable, because humanity demands progress instinctively. joining us tonight at Our Common Ground. We appreciate your support and your listenership. Do join us in our many portals on social media. Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, our website at OurCommonGround.com and follow us on Twitter at JaniceOCG. I sure hope you'll join us on Wednesday with Soul of Fire with Dr. Matthew V. Johnson and on Friday night with Alpho as he serves hot grits with his politics. You can find them on TruthWorks Network. And please, join us next Saturday night at Our Common Ground with Dr. David Icard. Dr. Icard is an Our Common Ground voice. He is a professor of English and African American Studies, Florida State University in Tallahassee, Florida, the author of A Nation of Cowards. We'll be talking with him about his new books, The Whites Are Blinding Us, here at Our Common Ground. We'll enjoy his return. And as always, we'll see you next Saturday, 10 p.m. If it's that time, if it's that day, It's Our Common Ground. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you.